Welcome to Pack Rip Media Presents NFT. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy. Really excited for this episode. This episode's different. Um, we really don't talk much about NFTs. Uh, I really wanted to sort of tell Andrew's story and let him tell his story so that people could learn more about him beyond uh, you know his brilliant writing and his interesting tweets and his uh, his funny posts and his insight into the space. Like I, I think if you listen to this, you're going to get a better idea of who Andrew is and why he's such a beloved member of, of our community. Um, he talks through in this interview about everything from childhood all the way up to present day. And um, he's had a really interesting journey to get where he is. And then there's one remarkable similarity between his discovery of NFTs and my discovery of NFTs that we get into toward the end. So I think this is probably the best episode of NFT Chef I've produced to date. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We did have some Wi-Fi issues. I did my best to smooth that out and edit that out. But I think you're going to really, really enjoy this one. Uh, there's not much to say to set it up other than what I've said. So why don't we just jump into it with my very special guest, Andrew Wang. We're going to talk about his story. So without further ado, here we go. Joining me on the MyMoment.com guest line, I am super, super excited to have Andrew Wang with me tonight. Andrew, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. It's great to see you again, Jeremy. Yeah, I, I mean, you are like an NFT badass. You write for Verge. You've written for the Washington Post, Insider, 1.37 p.m., I, I want to get into it all, right? Like I want to, I want to go through all of it, but I, I want to rewind. I want to go back to the beginning, and um, tell people about where where you were born and raised, and sort of um, what what was childhood like for you in terms of um, what were you into, what did you enjoy? Walk me through sort of like childhood to high school for Andrew Wang. Sure, let's do it. Um, so I've moved around my whole life. I was born in, you know, you know, near Los Angeles. And then I quickly moved to Houston, Texas. And then for high school, I went to boarding school in New England, like north of Boston, which was super, super strange. Um, it was a really good experience, but very new to me. And I saw things that I'd never seen before. And then after that, I went to college in New York City. And I'm here now. So it's really been like bouncing all over. Um, I think what's really cool is I feel like the seeds were definitely sowed in my childhood getting into NFTs. I would say that high school was like a turning point for me because think about this kid from Texas going all the way to north of Boston for school at this really wealthy, fancy elite, you know, private boarding school. And I'm seeing these things that I'd never seen before. You know, people are talking about art, culture, literature, and I'm just over here like, yeah, like, kind of like the ball. I like to go running, things like that. Um, and I think it kind of almost became a chip on my shoulder, if that makes sense. To the point where when I got to New York City, the first thing that I did was go to the MoMA because I thought that was what I needed to do. Like, hey, you've learned so much about art. You're in New York City. Why don't you live it? And I remember going to the MoMA and feeling like totally out of place and kind of ashamed and embarrassed that I wasn't getting anything feeling totally alienated from what I was seeing. And so maybe it's almost like <laughs> like an insecurity uh, that's led me to this space, feeling like I've been in a lot of places in my life. 
that's a really interesting perspective on on sort of how you would end up in in this space. And that was one of the questions I wanted to sort of really understand. Like, you know, childhood for me was I was an athlete who was in the orchestra, and I kind of just got along with everyone. I didn't really fit neatly into any sort of particular box. So, like, where would you when you think about high school specifically, like, how do you sort of self-identify or categorize your your high school experience, especially having some of that being spent at this prep school. Um, and what was the prep school experience like for you before heading to Columbia? And then we'll jump into that. Yeah. I mean, at prep school, in some ways, it was great because it taught me so much. It worked me to the bone. But I realized that the community as a whole was pretty insular and that a lot of us ended up doing the same thing whether because that was what we were used to doing, like because of our parents or the wealth that they had, or because we were like looking and imitating. And so for a really long time, I was an imitator. I would look at how my classmates would dress with like Sam and Shorts and J. Crew, and I would kind of put that on. But then over time, one really cool thing that happened was that, you know, this nerdy kid from Texas somehow got into track and field, like running a lot. Like I have my running shirt on now because I just got back from a run. And... I realized that I had started creating this community with some people and most of us were kind of like misfits, you know, either we weren't good at other sports or we just tried to give running a try because, you know, you don't need any equipment except for shoes. And we kind of bonded together. Like we got to kind of set the norms, like the culture of the team. Uh, We got to basically pretend that this was the most important thing in the world. And that's actually why my high school experience was so amazing is because we had this community and like, you can kind of see the, the through line to NFTs now, because we talk about community so much, but being, but, but being part of a group where we really got to define what our values were and learn from each other and grow together. Like maybe that's where my education happened. You know, your background is in education and like, sure. I got decent grades in school. Um, but really I feel like where I learned how to, you know, be a good person, and care about other people and grow with others and see like my success as intertwined with theirs was you know running in circles with my friends um, Monday to Friday so, so that so was high school you you go to prep school you then um, you know you you end up at Columbia obviously an amazing university for your for your undergraduate education uh, what was sort of in your mind as you're leaving the prep school environment it sounds like you got comfortable there, you know, like after you sort of found your niche and you found your place and you sort of found your community. Now that sort of gets, I guess, shaken. And now you have to go to this new community, which is, I'm sure there's some similarities between the prep school experience and ending up at Columbia. But it, I mean, you're now talking about New York City and you you brought up your, your sort of um, your trip to the MoMA and experiencing that what was that transition like as you sort of left uh, a community that you that was new to you that you became accustomed to and felt like you belonged and you you had everything sort of figured out and now you have to go to this brand new community in you know arguably the most insane and crazy city in the world like where are you with that in that process yeah i mean it definitely is the most insane and crazy city in the world Actually, I should say that before I went to Columbia, I actually went to a liberal arts college on the West Coast in California, um, near LA. And I think that's where things kind of went wrong for me. Um, <laughs> nothing against uh, my track team there, but 
I just all of a sudden didn't fit in. And what I realized was that my love wasn't for what I was doing. Like I could have been doing anything. I could have been playing the violin or like, I don't know, playing water polo or doing gymnastics. Really what it was about was the team culture that I had and the culture that I'd worked so hard to build. All of a sudden I felt like I'd taken a bunch of steps back and it felt hard to kind of build that again. So that and a few other reasons was why I transferred to Columbia to kind of be in this big city and sort of give things another chance. Do you remember a specific moment, Andrew, where where you realized this is not the place for me? Is there anything like in particular that sort of jumps out at you and, and made you feel like, no, 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 I, I need to go elsewhere? <laughs> I would say there, there's a lot of reasons. And, you know, when you're 18 and you're still impressionable, you know, it feels like either like, like these little things can really either get to you or you can feel like you can build your whole life around them. I mean, I think it was just like maybe the team didn't feel as close as I wanted it to be. And then when that happened, I was like, that closeness used to be the core of my life. And that broke down in college. And then a bunch of other things went wrong. And I was like, wow, like I feel so detached from everybody. I feel so detached from the things I love to do, my community, you know, myself even. I was looking in the mirror and like not liking who I was seeing. And so when I came to New York, yeah. So as you get to New York, what was it about Columbia and New York that made you feel more optimistic that you were going to find your sort of right place or right community um, in terms of running, in terms of school, in terms of everything there? It, it was kind of this like expectation that the city is so big and everybody spreads so wide that this really is like no way to live unless you're finding small communities and places and you're finding these like niche ways to kind of go about your day. Like, you know, people in New York do do weird stuff and I ended up doing weird stuff as well. I um, ended up not running on the track team, but entering a bunch of races all around the city. You know, races where I would meet people, um, hear about their stories. There was one race where, you know, I was running with this really, really amazing runner at the time. And, you know, I basically told him, look, we should slow down in this race together because, you know, you might get injured. It's not too important of a race. You should kind of chill out. And he's like, all right, word, let me slow down. And so we kept running at a slow pace. And then in the last 50 meters, he sees me duck my head down and pop my arms and like go crazy and beat him at the finish line. And he's like, what the hell, man? And so this guy's name was Donovan Brazier. A few months later, he became the world champion. So that makes me the unofficial world champion. So it's like things like that. You know, I, I, I lost that structure that I had begun to kind of take for granted. And I've been able to build it back in kind of weird ways, just like going out to Brooklyn, going out to the Bronx, just to run, like just to do weird stuff. I think it's made me a more real person, maybe a little bit more eccentric, but I feel like that's how I kind of take in the heart of the city is just by putting myself out there and knowing that, you know, that traditional community, that tight knit, obvious place might not be there. So you have to create it for yourself. So you're a good runner obviously like it's not just a hobby you were on competitive track teams i would assume by the fact that you're saying you run the city that you were a distance runner 
Um, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that you were pretty damn good because if you're talking about lowering your your head, you know, popping your arms and, and beating someone who's an eventual world champion, you know, wh- at what point did you realize you were really damn good at running? And uh, how, how did you sort of fall into that as something that you wanted to really stick with and pursue? You know, it's funny. I um, I don't think I'm really damn good at running. I think I, I'm good at the mental game. I was able to, <laughs> to convince him to slow down. Slow down. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, you, you, you outfoxed him in that moment. That's hilarious. Uh, it, it was, it was, it was a race that was just for fun, but um, no, you know, I, I think that's the point. The point was that I was never the top of the top. I was always a very middling runner. And what was great about that was it made me think, okay, if I can't stand out by being the best, or being at the front, how else do I stand out? I can stand out by pumping people up before we raced. I could stand out by helping people out, you know, teaching people who were new and, and needed to be taught. Like there are so many ways to get involved. You know, that's what community is, right? Like we joke that, you know, you can't have everybody be a leader. Um, in some ways it's like, there have to be different ways to lead. And when people are doing different things, you know, that's when the whole system runs. And part of me has always been like, you can never take the most obvious thing because even if you tried, you would certainly fail. So you have to try something else and try to make that work. So that's always what my philosophy is, I think. It's always like, be real with yourself. There's some things that you're good at, some things you're meant to do. Um, try and find out what that is and, and have faith in it. And, and don't worry about what it might look like to somebody else. Um, because to one person, it might be inadequate to another person. It might be creative. So that's kind of my philosophy. Yeah. And at Columbia, we have not, I I think said the word writing yet. And, and at Columbia, obviously you're, is it pronounced blog B W O G or is it pronounced something else? You did your research. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Oh, I've I've gone. You you wouldn't believe the amount of of Andrew Wang writing I have gone through and and peeked into and read. So you you at some point writing becomes either a passion. Maybe it always was, but you know you're pumping out content by the time you're at Columbia. Um, I just want to know like where did that sort of interest come from? I'm looking at actually your Columbia student news now, and I'm seeing this article and it's, it's, it, it's sort of uh, an article that you wrote that's drawing sort of a comparison to running um, and in drawing that between what's like at Columbia. So where did the passion and the interest in writing come from? Um, and then I want to jump into, I have a lot of questions about that as, as we go further. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So you said um, writing, um, you know, writing for me has always been like more of a kind of casual thing. I think I'm a really emotional and sensitive person. And, you know, maybe you talk to some artists and they say something similar. It's like when you live life a certain way and put yourself out there and have certain experiences, you get to a point where things kind of spill over. And because I'm so emotional, I often find that writing helps me try and put things into words, you know, in a very like... (laughs) clear-cut way like here's what's going on you know I'm not much of a creative writer I would say I think I'm good at explaining things and trying to connect the dots however I can 
So for example, the reason I wrote for blog, uh, blog is actually more of like a bloggy type newspaper for our campus. The main newspaper is called the Columbia Spectator. And that's the one where people go on to work for the New York Times and you know they, they win awards and they write these long pieces and they don't get any sleep. And they're always saying, you know, join our club, whatever. Blog is more chill. Blog is like the cool sister, in my opinion. And I liked writing for them because they were just like, yeah, Andrew, whenever you have an idea, just come through, pitch it, and then get it done. And it feels like so long ago now, but I've gotten to write some fun stuff for them. You know, I've gotten to run, uh, write some running articles. <laughs> I wrote an article about why the Naruto run is so important. I so, saw this I one. <laughs> right? It was like a sociological thing of like, I had this friend Stan who would hold these Naruto runs where we would run across campus with our arms feeling black, uh, backwards. And I loved it so much because Columbia had that reputation for being a kind of like cold, unfeeling, you know, isolating place. And then once a semester, we would just get together and do this stupid thing across campus. And it was just so much fun. Um, loved writing articles like that. I loved writing articles about events that, are, that were going on on campus. Um, very often times it would be events that I would sneak into. So before I started at the journalism school and dropped out, I would kind of sneak into events with friends and write those stories because undergrads generally weren't allowed in to certain talks or we had to RSVP for stuff, but we didn't hear about them because we're undergrads. You know, I convinced the office to give me swipe access to the building and I would just kind of slip in and sit in on these talks. And it, it felt nice. It felt empowering because I think when education's really good, you end up, like I said, like you overflow with emotions. You're like, whoa, like I learned these cool things. How do I process it? And writing was just naturally my outlet. And that's a euphemism for saying that like, I can't paint or draw or sing or play instruments to save my life. So thankfully I had one thing. Okay. So, you know, I, uh, we were talking that I, I earlier that I don't really fit into, I've never really fit into one particular box. And I was a, um, you know, a high school football player. And then I went on scholarship to a smaller college. And when I went away and I started playing, uh, you know, I went from a high school where there'd be eight to 10,000 people at a game to a college where there'd be 400 people at a game. And I learned something really damn quick about my love for football. I actually didn't love football. I actually liked the attention I got from playing football. And once I recognized that, I stopped fucking playing football. Uh, it was just like... I, to do all this work, to practice all year long, to have 10 games uh, and then have no one there to see it. It was sort of like, a, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make it sound, uh, make a sound scenario for me? And I realized I didn't love it anymore. And I've always tried to sort of peel back the onion to figure out, like, why why is it that I, I have a passion for certain things and why I don't have a passion for other things? And as an educator, that's what I've tried to do for students. What is it about writing? What is the endorphin kick for you about writing specifically that makes you enjoy doing it, right? Because you could write for yourself privately, could be a poet, you could not share these things publicly. Like, where does the sort of public facing aspect of writing fit for you in terms of the, the interest and desire to, to pursue it? I would say I love it because sometimes it feels necessary. Um, and what I mean by that is like, you know, you go through life and you experience things and you feel a certain way or you feel interested in things. 
And for me, it's like, I've had so many really fascinating experiences in my life. Um, and writing helps elevate that. Not only does it help me kind of put it down somewhere, but when I say it elevates that is it gets me to really think about what it meant and what I thought about it. Um, to me, it's a vehicle for acceptance and it's also a way to grow and become a better person to be more real with who you are. Um, you know, I think it goes back to how in college at Columbia, we had to read all of these philosophers, right? And like, is actually a part of our curriculum. And that's how I guess our school tries to distinguish itself from other, other schools. And so a lot of them I disliked, but a lot of them I really loved. And I was that kid who would like kind of do the reading. I would focus on that point that really, really stuck out to me. And then I would remember it forever. So vaguely quoting Nietzsche, there's this one thing he says, which is like, you go through life and so many of us are waiting for that one moment, like that breakthrough, the thing that kind of rescues us from oblivion. It's like, my life is not how I want it to be. But if one thing changes, if that agent calls me back, uh, if this tweet goes viral, if this post goes viral, if I buy this correct thing, make this right investment, do this one thing, then everything will change. And I'm going to wait for that to happen. And what he says is like, that may very well happen, but you kind of have to get lucky. And even if it does happen, it might happen too late. So you're like sitting here, right? And you're like, when is this moment in my life going to happen where things change? And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're getting older, you're getting weaker. And all of a sudden one day you get this flash of inspiration or this thing happens and you're like, yes, like I'm ready. And then you try to stand up from your chair, you know, you erupt as he says, but then he says, but because you've been waiting for so long, you didn't realize that your knees had gotten so weak that you weren't able to stand up. So for me, writing is about getting out of the seat like over and over again, when something makes you feel a certain way or you feel inspired, like you have to get up from the damn chair. You can't keep waiting because if you keep waiting, it's going to pass you by. Like, I'm not even talking about writing breaking news. Maybe like breaking news is the heart of it. But I think when you feel like you need to tell a story, then just tell it, right? Like stop waiting. And I, I think I always try to tell myself that with writing. Um, I can sometimes be a lazy person. I procrastinate just like most people. But when I tell myself I have to write, that's what gets me out of the chair uh, every single time. So hope that makes sense. That that makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, every, I swear to God, every other episode of NFT I've ever done, we've always started with what got you into NFTs and set some context around, you know, why this person's on. I love that in this episode, we're getting toward it at the end of the episode and, and walk me through, you know, you, you've tapped into this, you've locked, you, you've written for your student, um, newspaper, the blog, it's less formal, it's more chill. Like, how, how the hell does your interest in NFTs get peaked from there? Like, walk us through how that happened. Yeah, so to be honest, I was really struggling with my writing for a long time. Um, after I graduated college, it was during the pandemic because I was class of 2020. I had some good writing come out around that time because we had just entered the pandemic and 
we didn't really know what was going on and we were all kind of feeling those emotions. So I had written an essay about the pandemic and about what I was going to do about it. And then after that, I kind of just felt like I couldn't write. On one hand, things were hard. And then on the other hand, I didn't feel inspired just being in my home all day. Um, I had brief flashes of inspiration. That was when I wrote for the Washington Post uh, freelance. But when I did that, it was never too satisfying because I was still just in my room every day, kind of rotting. And I thought that things got worse when I went to play pickup basketball one day. And, you know, they put me on this guy who was like six foot eight because Andrew's a rabid dog because he ran college track. So just like make him do it. (laughs) But I ended up taking a charge and that gave me a concussion that put me in bed for two months. And I was like, things just went from bad to worse because now I'm in bed every single day. And I think I'm going to wake up feeling better the next day and it doesn't get better. And the only thing I like about myself is that I can think things through and write them down, but I can't think and I can't put pen to paper. I can't even look at a screen. And I was like, well, this is the end of it for me. Uh, But I think I got lucky with NFTs at that time because I used to, um, you know, have a blanket over my head and turn the brightness all the way down and kind of peek through my eyes and watch the NBA playoffs because I just couldn't miss that. I couldn't miss that for the world, especially if I couldn't do anything else. And that's when I heard about Top Shot. And I got into Top Shot, bought some moments from players that I loved and very quickly transitioned into the wider world of NFTs where I think I've really found my footing in this community. And that's how people know me, whether through my upside down cool cat or through my NFT articles. Um, I kind of saw that redemption and it was this moment of serendipity top shot actually. And I had to take that step. But once I took that little step, you know, I was like, all right, I'm out of my chair. What else can I do? And if I can see something I can do, I have to do it. And I saw that there weren't a lot of writers covering the space and those that did, Honestly speaking, I felt like sometimes their coverage was a a little bit inadequate. And I said, how can I fit myself into this space and keep getting out of that chair and write stories that really speak to people that start with the community and end with the community? Um, So I think that's how I really got into NFTs. So it wasn't just about getting into NFTs. Like NFTs saved my writing career. NFTs kind of saved me as a person. You know, they've made me optimistic again. They've made me want to do the things that I loved. I got out of shape from that concussion because two months does a lot to you. And even though I'm not as fast as I used to be, I'm still running in the same way that even if my writing isn't always perfect, I'm still writing. Wow. And you start writing, it's well received. I mean, you were already a, a very respected and skilled writer at that point. Like you mentioned, you had already done your freelance work for the Washington Post. Um, you know, we talked earlier about this parallel between the community that you found in prep school and running and, and, and in running in general. And you kind of sort of alluded to the fact that you could see some, you know, uh, similarities between how, how you feel uh, in, with your role within the NFT space. Uh, what was the sort of moment within the NFT space where you realized that that same opportunity for community existed um, and, and you aped in at that point? Yeah, I think when you're in the NFT space and you're intentional about it, it comes with a responsibility. 
uh, because value doesn't just come from a product that you buy and hold on to. Like you can really create value by how you put yourself out there into the space and what you do, whether you're an artist, you're a developer, a writer, a translator for all the great artists that are out there, but in non-English speaking countries, whether you just bring good vibes, whether you take notes or whether you just check on people and see how they're doing, um, you're building communities from the ground up, right? Like what's a project without its people? Like you have the art, sure. But in some ways that feels like not enough, right? Or it could be so much more. So I'm always thinking like, hey, I'm building up these communities with people. It's almost like you have the tools in your hand and you have to figure out what you're gonna do with them. And it's like getting that question over and over again in the space is what I think makes community so great. Like in the NFT community, right? We say it's a community as a whole. Like if you're in NFTs, you're in a community. But I think it's more just like, if you're in NFTs, you have the tools to build communities. And whether you're going into specific projects and doing that, or you're trying to uplift the space as a whole with good stories, um, by bringing in artists from diverse and fascinating backgrounds, like there are so many ways to go about it, but you have to do something. You know, you can't sit and watch. So I think if you're sitting and watching, then then you're missing out. You know, you, you got to run the race, uh, however fast or slow you are. Yeah, and, you know, you get out of your chair uh, in terms of writing within the NFT space. And, and as you're becoming more established in the NFT community, you're sort of put at this crossroads of having to make a significant decision, which is, do I attend grad school or do I not at this time, point in time? Um, I think you had already been accepted and you, you had to sort of wrestle with what you were going to do. Talk about what that decision-making process was like. I mean, I watched you in, on Twitter sort of agonize over what am I doing? What am I doing? Should I do this? I can't do this. I need to do this. I'm doing this. Kind of watch the whole, yeah. you know, uh, metamorphosis, if you will, as you were going through it. But, you know, you stood up from the chair. You're really finding community. You're, you're enjoying it. You're getting a sense of passion from what you're doing. Walk us through like that whole experience of trying to suss out like, well, now what? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the hardest things about leaving journalism school was that it was also at Columbia. You know, I talked about my experiences in college and while it wasn't a perfect place, it taught me to be a better person. And in truth, the school supported me through a lot of things. Um, they let me write one of the graduation speeches. Um, people would check in on me all the time. Like a lot of people used to joke that like, I should do the advertisements for Columbia because in some ways, like conceptually, we were on the same wavelength of, you know, finding magic in this like strange, weird, insane city. And I think it was hard for me to decouple that from where I was kind of mentally with NFTs and my writing from what this place institutionally had, had brought me. I think it was kind of like a gradual realization that what I was in school for really was to have friends and mentors after being in the pandemic so long and not getting to see many people and kind of feeling detached from a lot of people. 
And I was like, wait, I'm going to the school and I'm seeing all of these great and intelligent people who can really help me and I can help them. But then when I run back home and I turn on Twitter and I put on Discord and I'm like, GM or what's up guys? And then all of the chat is like filling in with people talking to me, asking me like, all right, what's the move for today? Like, like, what should we do? Like, let's hang out. Let's, you know, find some cool art. Let's jump in Twitter spaces. Let's hang out in real life and, and get a drink or a coffee or go dancing in the countryside, which is what one of my friends, <laughs> NFT friends took me to do. And I realized that what I was in the space for was the same reason that I had really wanted to go to grad school in the first place. It was community. And I had as strong of a community, if not stronger, in the NFT space. And so at that point, it almost became an easy decision. You know, jokingly, I said, when the tuition refund hit, I got an extra 17 ETH. So show me projects. But really what I meant by that was like, <laughs> everything I needed, I already had in one way or another. It's, it's fascinating. And I think that uh, you know, I'm 39, going to be turning 40. I have a PhD. I have two master's degrees. I, I've always enjoyed learning. And at Ergo, I chose to continue my education. It was just, I, I just enjoyed to learn. And um, in my field, I felt like it was something I needed to do. I think that more young people um, are, are sort of faced with the real sort of decision on determining the value proposition of even a bachelor's degree program. Because, I mean, uh, it, we're, we're just at a point where for many, the cost of higher education in the United States is, you know, exponentially high compared to the benefit, you know, they're, they're going to receive from it. And I think for you at, I mean, Andrew, I think you're 23, right? Yep. I'm so, it, it, you know, to have the ability to sort of, self-assess, peel back the layers and, and figure out that you already had what you needed is really remarkable. And I, I, I know it's, it, it may not sound to some like that's a really remarkable thing, but you know, in, in working with high school students and college students, I know that so much of the motivation is around status and around um, you know, what the perception of others is driving them to do. Uh, I think it's pretty remarkable that you could have the strength to say, I've got what I need. I'm good. And I'm going to do this thing for a while. I mean, you could always look at potentially going back to school if that's something you wanted to do. Um, can you talk through sort of what your your family's response was when you came to this decision? Did they get it? Did they not get it? What, what was that experience like? Yeah. So, you know, my parents were immigrants and while they ended up building a successful business for themselves, they never really went to college. So in that sense, I was a first gen student and growing up, <laughs> I always stressed how important an education was like, this is the thing that will change your life and show you things, let you see things that we've never been able to see. And I kind of spat that back at them and said like, you know, I've seen so much in college even. And while I can see more things by continuing my education, like, you know, you see me happy and I'm seeing so many things 
with Web3, with NFTs, with the metaverse. I'm learning every single day. Um, you, know, you can see the smile on my face. And secretly or not secretly, that is what all parents want for their kids, you know, to, to feel happy and fulfilled, uh, maybe realizing the dreams that they didn't get to. And as I get older, you know, I'm only 23, but I'm like, you know, like if I'm a parent one day and my kid does a web four, like I'll let him do What the hell will web four be like? I don't <laughs> want to think about it right now. Yeah. Yeah. But gosh, you know, it, it really wasn't too hard talking to my parents. I, I don't think. Um, my, did they get my dad, it? I, I did they get it like straight away? They're like, yeah, it makes sense. Or, or did you really have to sort of play by play break this down to help them understand why you were making the decision you were making? I think I did do a little bit of a play by play. I showed them some of my articles. I showed them some of the um, conversations I had had with people. You know, funny enough, I didn't actually have to tell them the value of my NFTs, you know, because they. Luckily, they went up a lot after I bought into them with not a whole lot of money, relatively speaking. Um, my dad called me the other day and I tweeted about this, but he said, I love you for the first time. And that's not to say that he never loved me. I think a lot of dads say it in their own way. And, you know, while not all parents um, are perfect, you know, no parents are perfect. Um, the vast majority of them do love perfectly and in their own way. But I think it meant a lot for me to hear those three words specifically from my father. Um, and he kind of said something along the lines of like, you know, I'm watching you, like I see what you're doing. I don't totally understand it, but it seems like you have a chance to do what you really love for a living. And he's like, on my end, his health had been declining. And he said, I realized that I also have a chance to be a better father to you. So we both have to do it right. And when I spoke with him, he ended up saying more about the history of our family, which I had not known a lot about. And he said, you know, I think it's cool that you're doing this. He basically showed me that while I try really hard to show you that I have everything together, the truth is that I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And I've hit a lot of those mistakes from you but I'm telling you them now. So you know that when you do this thing, when you keep writing and you keep doing these NFTs, like it's just the way the market is, like you're gonna make mistakes. Things are gonna go up and they're gonna go down. Um, you're gonna mess up sometimes, but I want you to know that that's been my whole life. And I don't feel the need to hide that from you anymore because you're doing it out in the open. You know, you're taking W's and L's. He didn't say those words, but you know, you're doing things well and you're making mistakes and in that sense, we're not so different, and it makes me want to be a better father. So, hey, you know what? Even if everything went to zero, to know that this journey has brought me closer with my parents, I'd say it was totally worth it. it when you zoom back a year ago, right, you know, in the throes of the pandemic and nothing is as it was, um, could you have ever imagined that this is what you would be doing a year later? No, no, not at all. I almost felt like, like I had finished, you know, the, the best stretch of my life because when you're in like a place where 
they're kind of like these bumpers, right? Like classes, teachers, friends, programs where you can go and impress. And I'm like, well, time to get a job. And I was <laughs> very close to taking a lot of jobs that I don't think I would have liked. Um, you know, that's the message that we all hear, especially with the pandemic. It's like, at first it was like, take what you can get. But then gradually for me, it became take what you think you deserve. And I think it's done wonders for my self-esteem. Um, it's helped me kind of value myself a lot more. And I, I still have those issues come up from time to time. But I, I really think, you know, <laughs> NFTs came in my life at a really great point. When I was at the lowest of my low, in that bed with the concussion, not able to do anything. And I got a chance to pivot my life. And if there's one thing I'll give myself credit for, it was just for taking that leap. And what role does fear play in, in your life, in your decision making, right? Because in my experience, a lot of what holds not just students, but adults back is the fear of failure, the fear of being mocked, so the fear of not being accepted, the fear of not being loved, and all of these things sort of meld together to create this like fear cocktail that prohibits people from moving or trying or, or, or getting out of their chairs, you would say. And how has fear sort of, you know, played into all of these decisions you've made from the jump, and especially this latest one with, you know, uh, focusing on staying in the NFT space, writing about the NFT space and not jumping back into school? Yeah, so with fear, I don't think it ever really goes away for me. You know, fear manifests in a lot of ways. You have that kind of existential fear of what your life will end up like if you make this decision versus not. Uh, for me, I get nerves and anxiety a lot before I do things. I'm getting a little better at it, but, you know, even before jumping on this podcast, I was like, Ugh. You know, I went for the run because I thought it would calm me down a little bit. And it did fire me up, but it didn't really calm me down to, to not sound nervous. Uh, I think for me, it's always just like, I don't know, fear makes me not want to act. Um, and sometimes I think I'm getting over it by making small decisions that my fear is okay with. So say, staying in school, but maybe trying to find a little part-time thing or staying in school, but telling myself, you know, I'll still try to freelance every once in a while things like that. And sometimes you almost have to like, be a little bit absurd. <laughs> like if there's something you really want to do, just give it a try. Um, there's nothing that you can fully know until you try it, I guess, in my opinion. Um, you know, some might disagree, but yeah, for me, the, the, the fear never really goes away. Like I'm confident that being in the NFT space was the right thing to do. It doesn't mean that some days I wake up and I'm like worried that this article won't be good. Um, or I'm worried that I'll, you know, make some mistakes somewhere. But, but yeah, it's, it's not about getting rid of fear. I think it's about facing it and kind of trying to be real with it and reflecting on how it's affecting you and kind of making a decision about you know, how do I respond to this? Is it okay if I make these small adjustments? that helped me kind of keep it away? Or do I have to make a big change? And that's not to make the fear go away. It's just to, to respond in a way that feels right. The journey of 
finding this space and, and what it's done for you. I, I just I, I just understand that on a really, really deep level. Like it resonates with me tremendously because uh, as many of the audience know, I had had five spinal surgeries and I wow. was stuck in bed. So similar to you with your concussion, I couldn't walk, uh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do much of anything. They had installed, you know, eight screws and four metal rods in my spine. And I had a staph infection and life was really, really bleak. It, it was probably one of the two lowest moments of my life. And that is when I, I found NFTs laying in bed as well. And I had been teaching blockchain to students for a while, even as a principal. Um, and I, I sort of fell into it, uh, Top Shot specifically, because um, I was really into sports and I was really into blockchain more than crypto. I'm not super, I was not super into crypto at the time. Still really, I'm, I'm not super into crypto. Um, so I just really, really understand that, that sort of way that the space has made me feel alive in a different way than I felt previously and what it's done for me. Uh, I just really, really understand that. And uh, I think it for a lot of people, it's it's had the same effect. And I, I think, you know, it, it's not about money for me. It's never been about money for me. It's never been about being a whale. Um, there's just something about the learning and the rapid innovation in the space that just makes me really engaged, happy and, and fulfilled. And so I just really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. And you know, before we, we get off, you talked about that sort of like, you just kind of have to do it. You just have to get over this fear. Um, you know, my wife and I were agonizing over the decision of if we should move to Dubai uh, six years ago. And we couldn't decide if it was the right decision. We, we did our T-charts. We, you know, read about it. We had spreadsheets and we calculated things. And we'd gone through all this really heavy work to sort of figure out well, if what we should do, you know, we were waiting for that, that one answer to show itself on the paper. And then I was talking to my brother-in-law and he just said, well, well, listen, man, if it sucks, come home. And I was like, holy shit. Talk about taking a really, really heavy situation and, and reducing it into the easiest decision in the world. I was like, well, yeah, if, if this isn't great, we can just come home. Like there's nothing really stopping us. And I think that moment changed my life because it helped me sort of figure out that the fear itself, if you really think about it, it there, there's not a tremendous amount to be scared of when you when you can get rational about what, what your opportunities are. If, you know, for whatever reason, the NFT space doesn't give you that same passion, you can go do something else. And I hope that others hear what you've shared, um, hear what I've shared and realize that, you know, that the opportunities are everywhere. And sometimes you just have to see what's going to happen and, and pursue it. And if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. You just you just do something else. Um, Andrew, I want to really thank you for spending time. I, I don't know what you expected this interview to be like, um, but it was exactly what I hoped, which is I just wanted people to get to know you more than the Twitter persona and your hilarious uh, tweets that will, will come out or your really interesting articles that you were right. And I just want to thank you for spending some time uh, and, and joining me this evening. Hey, Jeremy, that really means a lot to me. And if I could end with this, um, you know, when you were talking about Dubai, you made me think of a quote that I really love. And it goes, um, what is it? Yeah, here it is. So 
to love and win is the best thing to love and lose the next. And, you know, you went to Dubai or you even thought about it because there was something in that place that you loved or you imagined yourself loving. And you didn't know if everything would go right if you went for it, but you did. And maybe you won, maybe you lost, but you still followed that passion. You followed that love. And I think that's how I'll always feel about NFTs. You know, I don't know what winning means. I don't know if it means becoming a whale. I don't know if it means becoming, you know, a more respected writer or making more friends. Um, but I think no matter what, that love is going to be there. And even if I love and lose, and after spending a life taking L's and losing so often, I think coming in second place is is pretty damn good. Yeah, so what a great, you. great message to end on. I want to thank you. Andrew, uh, for joining me. And, and we'll definitely uh, have you back on as sort of everything evolves with this and, and hear where you're at in your journey. Anything else that you want to say to the audience before we wrap up today? Just that we're going to make it. And that's it. Hey, it's a perfect way to end it. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for joining. I hope you have a great evening. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jeremy. thank my very special guest, Andrew Wang, for joining. Uh, I really enjoyed learning more about him and sort of having this time to connect with him and, and, and understand his story and his uh, path to, you know, the NFT space. We all have our own journey and his is really, really compelling and interesting. I'm sure you agree. Uh, going to be bringing you some more episodes this week. Uh, I'm going to be speaking with the art of Yasmin in advance of her big drop that's upcoming. Uh, for her project, Elvin, and then also going to be talking to the Kobe Bryant 24 people, of which I'm um, really interested to sort of, I don't even know, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm interested to, to talk to them. We'll just leave it at that, and we'll see how that one goes. So a lot of episodes coming your way. Hope you enjoy it. As always, please subscribe to the PackRip Media stream as well as the NFT stream. Um, check out all of the PackRip Media content that's being produced by Top Shot Swicky by Chris Otis. Um, by Art House Garbage, by Pack Reviewing Adam Fish, uh, and the, the Here for the Moments guys. What a great team we have. So uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks to Andrew Wang. And uh, as always, take care of yourselves and each other. Peace.